Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise His word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what man can do to me. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the fruits. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are prepared. We do that through a few moments of silent prayer to utilize 1 John 1 9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to gather, to gather together as a body of believers, to study your word, to focus on the incredible doctrines that are there because they are they have been revealed to us in order to transform the way we think in order that our lives might be renovated with the end product in mind that we might glorify you with every thought, word, and deed. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to see how your word so magnificently puts together so many different doctrines with the result that we are both challenged and transformed. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the third chapter of James, and we continue our study of James, which is an epistle directed to those who are going through testing. Since we don't have anybody here going through any testing, I know this is merely academic truth. But maybe someday you'll find the opportunity to utilize some of the things that that we are studying. James chapter 3. Now we have seen that James is really written in a very precise way, unlike most common what most commentaries say about this book. Sometimes you really wonder if anybody with a theological education can do anything except regurgitate what somebody else told them. Because the vast majority of commentaries on this epistle say that it is the equivalent to the New Testament. Uh, Proverbs. Of course, Proverbs is just a random collection of various wise sayings and applicational truths. But James is not just a random collection. And that's why there's so much misinterpretation of James is because they don't, very few people, there are a few, but very few people understand the internal uh, dynamic of the epistle, the themes, and how this writer has so wonderfully and masterfully uh, interwoven these themes. And we see that the organization, back in chapter 1, starting in verse, uh, or in 119, is laid out. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We saw that the first 18 verses of the first chapter tells us the theme of this epistle, and that is how the believer is to deal with adversity. We have seen that adversity is not optional in life, that every single believer goes through adversity, everybody goes through adversity, 
that adversity is inevitable. You have really two categories of adversity. We don't normally think of prosperity as a form of adversity, but it is. Some of us just wish we would have the prosperity test so we would have the opportunity to apply the word in those arenas. But adversity and prosperity always present circumstances which put pressure on us to make decisions related to the use of the Word of God, the application of doctrine. Adversity and prosperity are the outside pressures of life. Stress is the inside pressure. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul when the person is operating apart from the biblical principles of God's Word. We drew this analogy to what happens in the stress testing of certain types of metals. They'll be put under a certain amount of pressure per square inch to see if there is some sort of internal flaw in the metal. In common everyday parlance, people use the word stress in terms of any kind of adversity. That's not how we're using it. We're using it as that which reflects internal flaws within the soul. And when there is outside pressure of adversity, if you are operating on human viewpoint, even though for a time you may be able to make life work, and even though you may have a measure of stability and peace and even happiness, as one, uh, one uh, person once said that uh, whenever somebody came into his office and wanted to have happiness, he said, well, what do you think will make you happy? Well, you know, just not to work and sit out on the beach all the time and, you know, have a lot of parties. He said, well, why don't you just take all your money out of the stock market and go down to the Bahamas and have a good time? If you're going life is to be happy, that's what you need to do. But if you're going life is to glorify God, then we have to talk about a totally different series of dynamics. Because when you are in the Christian life, you will necessarily and inevitably still go through those adversities. As Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And we will go through all kinds of difficulties and adversities. But what the Word of God promises us is not that life is going to be wonderful and pleasant all the time, but that even when we are going through some of the most incredible, hostile, antagonistic circumstances, we can have peace, stability, joy, tranquility beyond all imagination. We really need to get that fixed. After Sunday morning when everybody was asleep in five minutes, I decided we need to have that fixed in at least 75 degrees in here before we start class or we're going to have serious trouble. Anyway, uh, that's our little test for the evening. The squeak on the air conditioner. So we go through these various adversities as an opportunity to utilize the Word of God and put it into practice. But God has said that no matter what happens, we can have a peace that surpasses all comprehension. Now this is what James is addressing to us. And we saw that in the first division from 119 down to 226, the theme was being quick to hear. And he drew a distinction between those who hear and that's all they do is soak up the Word and they're on more or less of an academic trip. I think we need to just turn that air conditioner off. It's too distracting. That what happens is too many people think they, uh, just because they know a lot, they can tell you who certain figures in the Bible are. They can perhaps go through a timeline and they know a lot of theological vocabulary. In fact, there's a lot of seminary graduates who fit this category. 
it doesn't have anything necessarily to do with being spiritually mature. Just because you know a lot and you've heard a lot, you may be self-deluded. Self-deception is one aspect of arrogance and pride. And so James says, don't be a hearer only, but be an applier of the word. He uses the Greek word poieo, which means to do or to apply. And I think that it's easier for us to understand the concept. He's talking about application. He's not talking about getting involved in every kind of Christian program and gimmick and church activity that comes along. That's not James' idea of doing. His idea is application of truth taking the principles of God's Word and making them real in your life so that there is transformation. So this is the connection, hear and apply, and then he moves from there to emphasize that faith produces works if there is to be any growth in the spiritual life. And we saw that he uses the word faith as what you believe, not simply the act of trusting God, but what you believe, the content of your faith. Uh, The same way we talk about somebody and we might be in conversation and ask somebody what their faith is. And James is using it that way, that faith without works, that is doctrine, that is simply hearing the word, without application, is dead. It is useless. It does not have any value for your spiritual life. Then he shifts gears. That was the discussion on being quick to hear that that meant that learning the Bible, learning the principles of Bible doctrine, which is the entire counsel of God directed towards application in your life, that that had to be the highest priority, quick to hear. And then the second arena is slow to speak. Because one of the things as we have seen that happens in the midst of trials is that often there is the temptation to react with sins of the tongue, slander, gossip, maligning, running somebody down, uh, just talking too much. Some people just seem the more pressure they're under, the more they chatter, and they never really say anything. And we saw that Proverbs warns us that in the abundance of words, there is much opportunity to sin. So we are warned to keep our mouths shut and to uh, think more than we speak, because when you keep your mouth shut, you can keep your ears open and be quick to hear and learn doctrine. And then from this, we're going to move into the third category in a couple of weeks, slow to anger, which deals with the underlying mental attitude sins that were producing so many problems in this particular congregation. But now we find ourselves down at verse 13. Verses 13 through 18 form a paragraph in the original language, and it is a transition from the sins of the tongue, which was the subject of 3, 1 through 12, to the mental attitude sins that will be the topic from 4.1 and following. But remember, the main theme of this epistle is, believer, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, because you know the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its, well, the, the New American Standard says perfect result, but that's a bad translation. It's the Greek word, that we have studied so many times, telios, T-E-L-E-I-O-S, which means to be brought to completion or maturity. It's not the idea of perfection or sinlessness. It is the idea of moving, advancing from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. So the way we do this is by taking our tests and applying the Word. So we come now to a very important category that he is going to shift to, and that is the idea of wisdom. 
that your speech reflects something that's going on inside your soul. And it reflects whether or not there is true wisdom and understanding in the soul, whether you have doctrine resident in your soul that is the basis for handling tests, or whether you just have a lot of academic knowledge and human viewpoint in your soul. And so the point of this, these next six verses is to give us some understanding of how to evaluate what is really going on in our soul during times of testing. What James is saying here is that wisdom is to be the source of our speech, so we can look at our speech as something of a barometer of what's in our soul. He raises the question in verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, we'll just stop there. As I've said so many times, if we're going to have accurate application of doctrine, we must first have accurate interpretation of the Scriptures. To have an accurate interpretation, you have to have an accurate translation and understand what is being said in the original language. Now, when James asks this question, he is telling us that we need to stop for a little self-evaluation. We need to take a look at what is going on in our soul. And, of course, the only basis for objective self-evaluation is the Word of God. That's why he used the analogy back in chapter 1 that we looked at uh, of comparing the Word of God to a mirror. The Word of God is the only accurate objective tool whereby we can evaluate our, our thinking, evaluate what's going on in our soul and how we're applying it, and everything else ultimately is subjective and is... Uh, destructive. The Word of God is to function as a mirror. So he wants us to hold up the mirror of God's Word and take a look at what's in our soul in terms of the categories of this question. He says, Who among you, in other words, does anyone among you have wisdom and understanding? Who among you is wise and understanding? So first of all, we must determine what it is exactly that James means by wisdom and understanding. What are those two words? What do they mean? And then we must ask how we acquire or develop wisdom and understanding in the soul. One thing is clear, though, from the structure of the question and answer in this verse, and that is that you must first have wisdom and understanding in the soul before you can have the deeds of of the gentleness of wisdom. You must always change your thinking before you change your actions. The trouble with most Christians, most Christianity, is they've confused morality with spirituality. They've confused outside external behavior with internal transformation. And they've fallen into the same trap of the Pharisees. And Jesus told the Pharisees that that they were nothing more than whitewashed sepulchers. Now, there's words to gain friends and influence people by. They were clean on the outside and looked great. Their lives looked like they had it all together and that they knew God and worshipped God, but Jesus said there was no internal transformation. And the Word of God doesn't say you change things on the outside first, but that you change things on the inside first. And that the Christian life is a transformation from the inside out and not from the outside in. So the question is, who among you is wise and understanding? The first word here is wisdom, and it comes from the Greek word sophos. S-O-P-H-O-S, 
English word that's familiar to anybody who's been a sophomore in high school. It means wise. The other part of that, if you didn't know, is fool. That's what they think of sophomores. They're wise fools. They think they know more than they really do. Sophos here is the Greek word for wisdom. It's the classic form. It goes back to the 5th century A.D. It's the word Plato, Aristotle, Socrates used in terms of talking about wisdom. But, of course, the Greeks had a very pagan or human viewpoint concept of wisdom. This is a wisdom that is based on intellectual endeavor on the basis of either rationalism or empiricism. It is just what we would call academic or intellectual activity. That is not how the writers of the New Testament utilize the word wisdom. One thing we have to understand is that James and most of the apostles and all the apostles, the only writer of Scripture there might be an exception to is Luke, and I'm pretty sure Luke was probably just a Hellenized Jew. James was a Jew with all the background of the Septuagint, the LXX. For those of you who don't know, this is the Roman numeral for 70, and it's the technical abbreviation for the Septuagint, which means the uh, it's called that because, according to legend, 70 Jewish rabbis translated the Pentateuch in 70 days, so it's called the Septuagint. That the, uh, they knew the Septuagint, that was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and so their understanding of a lot of Greek words had more to do with how the Old Testament Hebrew understood these concepts than how 5th century Greeks understood the concept. And that's important to understand, because sometimes people make the mistake of going into classical Greek in order to uh, find a lot of meaning, and that's not irrelevant. That is important many times. But it's also important to understand the Old Testament background of these words. So James is a Jew, and we've seen that he's writing to the Jews, the twelve tribes scattered, Jewish believers, and he has a lot of Jewish background in this epistle. So this is going to relate to the Old Testament word. Let's see, it looks like this, chokhmah. C-H-O-K-M-A-H. Hokma, which is the word found frequently in Proverbs for wisdom. Now, regarding the Greek word sophos, the Lonidic Dictionary says that this means uh, it's a type of knowledge that pertains to specialized knowledge resulting in the skill for accomplishing some purpose. It means someone who is skillful, someone who is an expert in their particular field. Now, remember that term. He's skillful, he's an expert. In the Bauer, Art, and Gingrich lexicon, which is the classic lexicon on Greek studies, uh, sophos means to be clever, to be skillful, to be experienced. Therefore, it relates to someone who has skill in living the spiritual life. This is not the academic knowledge type of wisdom that the Greeks talked about. This is a Hebrew-based concept. The word chokhmah in the Old Testament for wisdom is often translated skill. It is the word that is used back in Exodus when the Spirit of God came upon Bezalel and the, the goldsmiths and the craftsmen in the, in the uh, tabernacle and says that the Spirit of God gave them skill to work in their various fields of artistry and so that they would produce something of artistic value that was beautiful and attractive. 
That's the underlying word in the whole, all the Bible for the concept of wisdom. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. That's a pagan idea. That's a Greek idea. It goes back to Greek philosophy, the pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, and all of that. But this is a Hebrew concept that is very application in its orientation. Now, the reason I stress that is what did James emphasize throughout the last half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2? Application. Don't be simply a hearer in self-delusion, but be an applier of the Word. So his concept of wisdom is not just accumulation of facts and knowledge, but it is always, always drives towards application. Remember, before you can apply something, you have to know it. You can't apply what you don't know. You don't know what you haven't taken the time, the energy, and the discipline to learn. Anything in life worth doing is worth doing well. And if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and our ultimate goal is to glorify God, then the most important thing that we can ever do with our lives is to learn what God has said to us inside and out. When I read how the rabbis treat the Word of God, I am always convicted of how sloppily seminary students and seminaries handle the Word of God. When I look back in church history of how pastors in previous generations were required to know the Word of God in such detail and to prove it at ordination ceremonies where they would be given a text of Greek or a text of Hebrew with nothing else around, and they had to be able to translate and exegete that before an ordaining committee. You know, these were the standards that we had in this nation for many, many years for anyone who was going to handle the Word of God because we placed it on such a high level of priority. I've heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he went to seminary with Charlie Clough, who's been here, and some others back in the 60s. Hopefully we'll have Arnie here sometime. He's quite a fascinating guy. He was born in Siberia. His parents were Jews who had fled the Germans in Poland, and then they were arrested by the Russians. His father was arrested by the Russians, and they were deported to Siberia. Well, his father was the last in a line of Jewish scribes. And in order to enter into this special organization that they had, and their, their primary function was to translate and transmit the Hebrew Old Testament, they had to pass a test. And that test was that a Hebrew Bible was put on the table and they would take a nail, place it on top of it, and drive the nail into the Bible. The, the one who was being tested had to be able to tell what letter that nail bisected on any given page. Now that's knowledge of the Word of God. The sad thing is, they knew all the letters, they knew all the words, but it was academic knowledge. They didn't understand who the Messiah was. They didn't understand that Jesus Christ had come and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we can have, could have eternal life simply by putting our faith alone in Christ alone. So, academic knowledge doesn't cut it, but even so, we as believers often treat this wonderful thing that we have so lightly. We just don't know it like we ought to know it. Sometimes we know our jobs, we know our computer manuals, we know the things related to our hobbies, much more uh, in detail than we do the Word of God. That's what James is talking about here. He says, Who among you evaluate yourselves? Who has true wisdom? Wisdom is not just a knowledge of doctrine. 
It is an understanding of doctrine deep in the soul, what we have called epinosis doctrine, from the Greek word for full knowledge. Gnosis doctrine is merely Bible doctrine understood academically. When all you do is understand the Word of God academically, you are a prime candidate for arrogance. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up. You'll always find somebody who comes along who doesn't know anything about the Greek and say, well, you guys spend just too much time studying the Bible. Don't you know 1 Corinthians says that knowledge puffs up? Yeah, that's right, it does. It says that gnosis puffs up. Because gnosis is academic knowledge for the sake of knowledge alone. And that is wrong. The goal of all biblical knowledge is epinosis, which is applicational knowledge. Knowledge that transforms the the character, the inside of a person, the way they think, and then the way they live. So James says, who among you has wisdom? Now, the starting point for wisdom, I want to give a couple of points on wisdom. We have seven points on wisdom in the Bible. First of all, point number one, the starting point for all wisdom is humility. Humility, awe, and respect for God. You see, humility is basically authority orientation to God, recognizing that God is the final authority for every category in life, every category of knowledge, every category of thought, every category of activity. That when God says that He has given us in His Word everything pertaining to life and godliness, He does not mean that He left something out. That relates to the wonderful doctrine we call the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm continually amazed when I read modern writers and they give lip service to sufficiency of Scripture and they don't understand it. Sufficiency of Scripture means that the Word of God is enough. That's the synonym for sufficiency. It's all we need to handle any circumstance, any crisis, any adversity in life. The principles are all there. We just have to learn them. That's why it's important to go... Uh, to be regularly in attendance at Bible class to learn all these things. Because you see, God is omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. And in eternity past, God knew every problem, every difficulty, every heartache, every tragedy that would ever occur to every single person in the human race. And God in His omniscience prepared a way, a, a way of revelation so that complete revelation would be given so that the principles necessary to handle all of those difficulties would be available to mankind. God is also omnipotent. This means that God is able to do everything necessary to bring to completion His will and plan. So between our understanding of the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God, we know that God was able to tell us everything we need to know to handle everything. Nothing surprises God. There's nothing in your life that's a surprise to God, and He's revealed just how to handle that in your life and so that you can still have maximum stability, happiness, and joy. The starting point, though, is authority orientation, recognizing that God has done this, that He is the sovereign of the universe. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not going to get to wisdom unless you straighten up, get your arrogance under control, say yes, sir, to God, and start submitting yourself to the Word of God, realizing that God knows a whole lot more about everything than you do. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Point number two. The source of wisdom is God and his revelation. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Proverbs 2, 6, and 7. Now, this is what we have seen. Is in the course of our lives, we go through tests. Tests of adversity, tests of prosperity. Adversity and prosperity are inevitable. They are the outside pressures of life. And here we are. This is our soul, the real us, comprised of our self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. Now, God tells us that He will erect a shield. In the Psalms, it talks about a fortress, so we've developed the analogy of a soul fortress. And that this soul fortress is based upon what we've extrapolated as stress busters. Ten problem-solving skills. These are spiritual skills. Notice how I'm weaving these themes together. Wisdom involves skill. To develop any skill in life, whether it's with a computer, whether it's with a, a saw and a hammer, whether it's with... Anything in life, whether it's with words, no matter what your field is, to develop skill, you have to practice it over and over and over again until it is almost second nature and you don't have to consciously think about it. And that's what's true about these ten stress busters. Number one is confession. First John 1 John 1.9, this is how we recover. When we go through adversity and we try to handle things on our own and we get caught up in mental attitude sins of anger and resentment, fear and hostility... And then we have to uh, recover from that through 1 John 1.9. Confession, and then we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us. Ephesians 5.18, He is the power of the spiritual life. The spiritual life in the church age is a unique spiritual life. It is a supernatural way of life. It is enabled and empowered not by our ability, but by God's ability. It is not morality. It is not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is not moral reformation. It is learning the Word of God and applying it under the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And we have the promise that if we are walking by means of the Spirit, we will not absolutely, because it's impossible, the Greek is very strong, we will not, cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh until, of course, we yield to temptation and then we sin. So we have the filling of the Holy Spirit and then the basic principles of the faith rest drill, learning to trust God, mixing faith with the promises of God. Then we get into grace orientation, understanding the dynamics of God's grace, that He deals with us not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of who He is and what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It is never on the basis of who we are or what we have done. It is always on the basis of His grace. Then, the next level is doctrinal orientation. We need to orient our minds to the teaching of God's Word. God's Word is reality. We are to live by faith and not by sight. When the Word of God is more real to you than your experience, your heartache, your troubles, your difficulties, whatever somebody did to you in the past, whatever those failures were, when the Word of God is more real to you than any experience, that's when you're walking by means of faith. Doctrinal orientation. We need to realign our thinking to reality as God defines it. Then we get out of spiritual childhood and we go into spiritual adolescence and we start developing a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We start thinking in terms of the fact that God is now training us to be who He wants us to be in all eternity. This is boot camp. 
When we die physically, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord and we will spend eternity with Him in heaven and we need to be prepared for it. We need to develop capacity for heaven. We need to learn who God is and what He has done for us. And the sad thing is, many Christians who just know a thimbleful of what the Bible teaches are going to die. They're going to end up in heaven and go, where am I? Nice place, but where am I? No capacity. Then we start developing the love triplex. Love triplex involves our personal love for God, which is the prime motivator that in essence swings us around here and accelerates our growth. The more we realize who God is and what He has done for us, the more we are overwhelmed with His, with His grace, His love, and all of the phenomenal assets He has given us, the more we fall in love with Him and that motivates us to live for Him and to please Him. Personal love for God motivates us and that is un- underlies our impersonal love for all mankind, or unconditional love for people. That unconditional love is not based on their goodness, their kindness, their sweetness, because they aren't. Sometimes they are, but when they aren't, we have to love them anyway. And that means that that love has to be based on something greater and more powerful and more stable than anything in this life, so it's based upon our love for God, and that allows us to continuously deal with people in terms of kindness and gentleness and goodness, always treating them in terms of what is best and right. Then we have the third facet of the love triplex, occupation with Christ. And when all of that's in place, then we will experience to the maximum the inner happiness that God has for us. All of this is that shield that wisdom provides for the believer. It all comes together when you hit spiritual adulthood, just like in regular life. You talk to your kids. What do you want to do? I want to grow up and be treated like an adult. The goal is not to stay a kid. Now, I know I can look out there and see some of you adults and you think, oh, boy, I wish I were a kid again and I didn't have the problems and responsibilities that I have now. But the goal in life, and you know it, is to be an adult. Take on those adult responsibilities. That's where life really begins. It's when you become an adult. And the same is true in the spiritual life. It is not to stay a spiritual baby or spiritual infant screaming in the nursery of many of our churches because that's all they ever have is spiritual nurseries. The goal is to advance to spiritual maturity, which is where we exemplify and start exemplifying the character of Christ. It is character transformation. When we have that internal transformation as a result of utilizing these spiritual skills... That is when we have within us, as as Paul said in Galatians, Christ formed in you. And that is when we begin to glorify God to the maximum. That's the background. That is why Proverbs 2.6 says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. When we're walking in integrity, we're walking by means of of the Holy Spirit, and we're utilizing the ten stress busters so that we can advance to spiritual maturity and God protects us so that no matter what those external uh, attacks are, no matter what the adversity is, no matter how horrible it may appear, God tells us that we maintain integrity of soul and we will not be destroyed no matter what the world might do to us. That's from wisdom. Point number three, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. The Bible only sees two categories. You're either walking in wisdom or walking in foolishness. You see the same categories in Ephesians 5 when it talks about 
walking in light and ends up saying that you need to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. You're either walking in wisdom, applying divine viewpoint to your life, or you're walking in foolishness, applying human viewpoint to your life. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Why? No authority orientation. No humility. They think they have all the answers in life. Point number four. Without wisdom, there is no blessing in this life. Without wisdom, there is no blessing in this life. Proverbs 3.13, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Wisdom is a source of happiness. That's what blessing is talking about in that passage. Happiness comes by finding wisdom, advancing in the spiritual life and having epinosis doctrine rule in your mind. Psalm 51.6 Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Point five. The acquisition of wisdom, therefore, is to be, be the believer's highest priority. Nothing in life is more important because when you die and you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, the only thing that you're going to take with you into heaven is the doctrine that you have stored in your soul. And for those of you who think that when you die you're going to have it all together, let me correct you. God is omniscient. We will never be omniscient. Omniscient is a facet of deity. It is eternality and infinity applied to knowledge. He has infinite and eternal knowledge, and we will never have infinite and eternal knowledge. And when we die and we're face to face with the Lord, for all eternity we're going to learn all kinds of things, and it won't be long before we make people like Einstein look like mental midgets. There's so much for us to learn. There's so much about all of creation, the entire universe, so much about God because He is an infinite creature. Not a creature, He is the infinite Creator. There is no end to Him. There will be no end to what we learn about Him. For all eternity, we will be learning about God. And it starts with what He has revealed to us in His Word. The more we know about that, the better we will be when we hit heaven and start at ground zero. Some people will be starting so far back at the starting point because they're, they've never learned the Word. They've never developed any capacity for understanding or appreciating God in this life. So that is our challenge. That is the focus. Presbyterians said it, said it best in the Westminster Confession of Faith so many centuries ago. What is the chief end of man? To know Him and to glorify God forever. That is it in a nutshell. Point number five, the acquisition of wisdom, therefore, is to be the believer's highest priority. Proverbs 8.11 for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare to her. You cannot come up with anything in life that even equates to the glory and the wonder of knowing Bible doctrine. Nothing surpasses that, according to Proverbs. Proverbs 19.8, He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. Point number six. Wisdom is tantamount to epinosis doctrine in the soul. That's our Greek concept we've looked at so frequently. It's not merely academic knowledge of the Bible, which the New Testament calls gnosis, but it is applicational doctrine, which is learned under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So wisdom in the Old Testament is tantamount to epinosis doctrine in the soul, synonymous concepts. Point number seven. 
Wisdom will eventually play itself out in the speech of the believer. Transformation comes from the inside out. So the more you learn, if you're learning under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, then the result will be the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will produce this in your life. It's not for you to say, okay, I'm going to go out and produce this. That Anybody can go out and imitate through morality and through self-mastery and, and human viewpoint self-discipline. This is the unique fruit and production of God the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in this passage. There's a tremendous parallel. For those of you who haven't caught it yet, there is a tremendous parallel between this passage and the one we're studying in Galatians on Sunday morning in the first hour. Proverbs 10.31 says, The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. Psalm 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. So wisdom works itself out in the speech of the believer, Proverbs 10.31 and Psalm 37.30. So that helps us to understand what James means by wisdom. It's a very powerful, life-transforming concept. He said, Who among you is wise? And then the second word is, Who among you is understanding? And this is the Greek word, Epistemon. Looks like this in the Greek, E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-N. This is a basic word for knowledge. We get the English word epistemology from this. And it again refers to someone who is an expert. Someone who has advanced to the highest level of understanding and skill in his field. And thus has developed insight, understanding, perception, and discernment. So when we apply this concept to the spiritual life, we're indeed talking about someone who has advanced to spiritual maturity. Somebody who has taken a tremendous amount of time, exercised a lot of discipline to be in Bible class and to learn the Word of God and the principles of Bible doctrine so that they can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. So James says, think about it, evaluate yourself, are you wise? And are you understanding? Do you have skill with the spiritual life? Do you have skill with the stress busters? Do you understand these things? Do you apply them on a consistent basis when you encounter tests and trials in life? Remember, the issue is your volition. Are you going to be walking by means of the Spirit or walking according to the flesh? The mandate there in Galatians 5.16 emphasizes your volition. You make the choice, but the power comes either from the sin nature or from the Holy Spirit. This tells us that every one of us, no matter what our vocation may be, no matter what your interests might be, no matter what your hobbies, talents, or pleasures might be, every one of us is to become an expert in the spiritual life. That is our primary purpose. Really, everything else in life is secondary to that. That is our priority. We are to become experts at living the spiritual life. Now, this question that James asks, who among you is wise and understanding, drives you to self-evaluation. Are you there yet? Are you maturing? Or do you understand that you are supposed to be maturing? Do you understand that that is the goal for your life and that is, that is God's plan for your life and that God has provided everything you need? He has provided a sufficient revelation in the Word of God to teach you everything you need to know about Himself and about what He has done for you in salvation and what He has provided for you in the spiritual life. He has also provided you the Holy Spirit who indwells you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And it is the Holy Spirit who helps you to understand the Word of God through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. He is our mentor. He is our guide, the Scripture says. Jesus said, I will send a comforter, that is a paraclete. And the concept of a parakletos was someone who was a mentor and a guide, someone who, who would move us along the path towards spiritual maturity. It is God the Holy Spirit who reminds us of doctrine, who recalls doctrine to our mind for us to apply at the appropriate time when we go through various tests. But the issue is always, are we going to decide for or against God? Now, the question causes us to evaluate what's going on in our own souls, and then the mandate comes up after this. This is to get us to understand what our responsibilities are as believers. Let him, that is the one who is a spiritually mature believer, who thinks he is a spiritually mature believer, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. See, James is assuming that you're going to want to do this. Writers of Scripture do not assume that you want to just be saved and then sit on your hands. The writers of Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ always assumed that if you were a believer, you would want to advance to spiritual maturity. So that's why he phrases the question. Now we have an interesting word here. We have the word, let him show or demonstrate by his good, by his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But... Before we get there, we have to answer another question. The first question we raised at the beginning was, what does it mean to be wise and understanding? And the second question is, how do we get wisdom and understanding? And here we go back to the grace learning spiral. The issue in the spiritual life is not your IQ. The issue in the spiritual life is not whether or not you've got three years of education or 30 years of education. The issue is not your culture. The issue is your relationship to God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father designed an incredible way of learning for every single believer in the church age. So that no matter who you are, you too can understand all the principles of Scripture. I have seen people who have hit churches, who have spent years on... who dropped out of school when they were in the 6th grade, 7th grade, or 8th grade, but because they had a hunger and passion and a thirst for the Word of God, and because they sat there night after night after night, maybe because of their limited background they had trouble with terminology, vocabulary, and they missed a lot, but they caught enough. They understood the power of God. They began to understand the basic dynamics of the relationship with the Holy Spirit. They would go home and they would read their Bible. Maybe they had to get a children's Bible in order to really be able to just comprehend the vocabulary that was there. But they never slowed down. And I tell you, I have seen people you would never expect 20 years ago to have an advanced theological vocabulary today. They don't have anything, they don't even have a high school diploma. Yet they can talk about superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. They can talk about predestination and election. They know all the terminology. Why? Because they wanted to know the Word of God. It's positive volition. They did not accept the fact that all I need to know is enough to get saved and know how to pray 
and a few other basic concepts. They wanted to know everything there was to know about the Word of God, and they knew that in order to be able to think about it, they had to have the necessary vocabulary. Just as those of you who have gone out and bought a computer become overwhelmed with RAMs and ROMs and bits and bytes and everything else, and then after a while, all of a sudden, you realize that those terms really do mean something to you now, and you don't have to think so hard about it. It's just a process of growth and learning in any endeavor in life. There is always technical vocabulary. And the more we learn it, the more we're able to function in that field, and the same is true of Scripture. Now, here's the grace learning spiral. The two colored spheres here represent the thinking part of the soul. Remember, the soul is made up of self-consciousness, which is our self-identity, individual identity, mentality, emotion, which is the responder of the soul, emotion, conscience, volition. The soul, the Bible says, has two spheres. It talks about the noose, which is that outer sphere, and then it uses the word cardia to talk about the innermost sphere, just as you talk about the heart of a tree, you talk about the center part of the tree, you talk about the the heart of a matter. You talk about the core issues in that particular matter. And the word cardia in the Bible refers to the thinking part of the soul. It doesn't refer to the emotions. It doesn't refer to the volition. It may relate to that and relate the thinking part to those other aspects, but it is primarily the thinking part of the soul. How do we know that? By the way, it's used. Matthew 9.4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil? In your hearts. You see, where do you think? You think in your heart. Your heart is the innermost part of the mentality of your soul. Matthew 13, 15, For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and what? Understand with their heart. You see, it is the heart where understanding takes place, according to Jesus. Matthew 15:19 For out of their heart comes first of all evil thoughts. In fact, in the whole list there out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. You don't have an emotional sin in the bunch. It's thinking, thinking. Mark 2:6 But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. That's where you reason, that's where you think, that's where cognition takes place. Biblically, lave in the Hebrew, cardia in the, in the Greek, refer to the innermost thinking part of the soul. Luke one fifty one, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud, where? In the thoughts of their heart. So heart is the thinking part of the soul. Now what happens is the pastor teacher communicates doctrine and the Holy Spirit if you're under the filling of the Holy Spirit and you're in fellowship with the Lord, the Holy Spirit call, makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. As pneumaticos doctrine, it's understandable, but He doesn't understand it for you. You still have to chew the food. He just makes it digestible. So you have to understand it. You have to exercise positive volition to go home and think about it. You don't just write the notes down in your notes and put that later in a file. You have to think about what you've learned. It's positive volition, and then it be, when you understand it, at that stage, it is gnosis doctrine. It is understood truth. It is only academic truth at that point. You understand it, but it is not usable. 
then you have to exercise your volition again. You have to decide, now that you understand it, whether or not you believe it. And let me add something. Just because I say it, and you comprehend it, in terms of the basic vocabulary, does not necessarily mean you comprehend the concept. Many times I have sat under some of the best Bible teachers and theologians in this country, and it has been several years later before the light bulb went off. Now, I was able to write those notes down. I understood the basic concept in one way, and I even regurgitated it successfully on examinations. But that does not mean that I really understood it. Later, the Holy Spirit would bring several things together, and, oh, now I understand. Now you believe it, and it's transferred by God the Holy Spirit into the innermost thinking part of your soul, the cardia, where it is stored in the memory pathways. Now, that merely means you've got usable doctrine. It's analogous to the fact that you've eaten food, you swallowed it, that was your volition. After that stage, things took over, involuntary reflexes took over, that means the volition was not the issue anymore. These automatic reflexes took over, muscles took over, moved the food into the stomach, certain uh, chemicals, certain uh, things were uh, digested or secreted, enzymes broke it down into sugar, and then it was uh, transferred out to the bloodstream, taken to feed the blood cells where it becomes what? Usable energy. Now what happens? That's analogous to this whole process. The Holy Spirit, up to this point, this is when you swallow it, the Holy Spirit makes it usable doctrine. But He doesn't use it for you either. He's not going to comprehend it for you, and He's not going to use it for you. That's your volition. When the test comes, then you have to apply it. When the opportunity comes to sit on the couch as a couch potato and eat a bag of potato chips and salsa and watch a football game or or go down to to the gym and work out your muscles, that's the difference. Some people, when they hit the test, they just want something to make it easy for them, so they become spiritual couch potatoes and they fall apart spiritually. Others recognize the test as the opportunity to exercise those spiritual muscles, and they start to respond positively by applying doctrine. That's where application comes in. So James is saying that this is what he's talking about, that application, let him show. This is a Greek word, uh, dixado. It's an aorist active imperative from dignumi, which means to demonstrate. The word means to show something, to make known something, to make known the character or the significance of something through visual, auditory, gestural, or linguistic means. For us, that means you're going to demonstrate by your lifestyle. That's good behavior. It's the Greek word anastrophes, which means your, your character, your good behavior, your lifestyle, that you are going to demonstrate by your lifestyle, by the kinds of decisions you make, by the things you say, the things you do, you're going to demonstrate by that your works. That's what it's talking about here. But works, notice, works are way down the line here. What precedes works? What precedes works is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the discipline, comprehension, understanding of the Word of God, transfer through the mechanics of the filling of the Holy Spirit into epinosis, and then as your soul is edified and built up, by means of doctrine, then you begin to apply. It's not, oh good, you're a Christian. Let me give you this track and take you down the street so you can start witnessing. Because that person doesn't know beans yet and they're going to get twisted around in a, some, somebody and they've gotten the whole thing out of whack. It is not activity 
It is obedience to God and the outworking of those principles in the soul. And that's why you see the emphasis here. He doesn't say, who among you has just gotten saved? Let's go out and show by your good behavior. He says, who among you is wise? James recognizes that before you start putting a lot of people out on the street or in the mission field or teaching Sunday school downstairs to the kids or any other kind of of Christian service, that first of all, they have to have some knowledge. You see, the development of your priesthood precedes the development of your ambassadorship. And you have to understand what it means to have a relationship with God. And that precedes, that learning the Word precedes applying the Word. Now, daixato here, translated show, is an aorist active imperative third person singular. And we have gone through, and I don't have time now to review it, but we have gone through James now, and we have seen that he uses present active imperatives and a second person plural to indicate the basic uh, principles of the spiritual life that apply to everybody. He'll give a present active imperative, and then that is usually followed by a series of aorist active imperatives in the third person singular, which gives specific mandates for the fulfillment of the general principles. And these specific mandates, then, are to be priorities. That's the thrust grammatically and syntactically, of an aorist imperative. The basic idea of an aorist imperative is a command in which the action is viewed as a whole without regard for the internal makeup of the action. The ingressive means to begin an action with a stress on the urgency of the action. So urgency indicates priority. And he's saying that once again, as he's said throughout this epistle, that application is the priority. But you can't apply what you don't know, and you can't know something until you learn it, and learn it, and learn it. Discipline in the classroom. So first you learn doctrine, and then you apply doctrine, and this produces works. It's production. It's the Greek word erga, which means works, and it is tantamount to the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice... It is called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to close there, so turn over to Galatians 5 with me. Notice it is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your volition. It's not the fruit of your own energy. It's not the fruit of your own moral reformation power. It's the fruit of the Spirit which comes because you have been walking by means of the Spirit. Now, in Galatians 5:22 and following, we have a list of the production of the Holy Spirit. The production of the Holy Spirit is going to be tantamount to the kind of works that James is talking about. Now, the end of this passage, James says, Let him show by his good manner of life, his lifestyle, his works. How? In the gentleness of wisdom. Bad translation, proutes, does not mean gentleness, it means humility. It's the same word that's used back in James 1.19, where it says, in James 1.19 that we are to receive the Word with humility. It also is the same word used to describe Moses. Moses was a very strong, dynamic leader in the Old Testament, took between two and three million stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites for 40 years out in the wilderness. And the Bible says he was the most humble man in all of history. But he was a strong, dynamic leader. So humility has to do with Authority orientation to God, a lack of arrogance. It doesn't have anything to do with confidence in God 
or dynamic leadership. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Gentleness. Now, we'll do an in-depth study of these when we get here on Sunday morning. But notice the last two. Gentleness and self-control. Gentleness is authority orientation to God. It's humility towards God. When we are humble towards God, then self-absorption is not the issue. When we get involved with self-absorption, it's real easy to slip into bitterness, hostility, anger, animosity, where self becomes the issue. But when self is not the issue, when God is the issue and our obedience to God and walk with the Lord is the issue, then it's easy to relax in the midst of the situation and not start reacting emotionally. But in order to do that, because as soon as you start reacting emotionally, you quit thinking. That's why in the military, you go through drill after drill after drill after drill so that it becomes second nature to you. And when the crisis hits and you're in combat, you don't have to uh, worry about the fact that, that your emotions take over and you quit thinking and you can't do your job. Now you know what to do and you do it. Same thing in sports. The same thing in any kind of competitive endeavor. You review something over and over and over again until it's second nature to you so when pressure comes, you can still carry out your task. Thinking precedes action. You have to learn to think biblically and then you will respond correctly and the result is you will have incredible joy, peace, stability in your life and you won't cave in to the horrible mental attitude sins of bitterness and jealousy and selfishness and arrogance, which is the subject of the next verse, which we'll take up next Wednesday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the perspicacity of Your Word and the way it drives the truths of Your Word home into our lives. The eternal truths that You have given us and gives us that objective lamp to evaluate ourselves. Holds up the mirror so that we can see ourselves for who we really are. Father, we pray that we'd have the humility, the authority orientation to submit to Your Word and be honest with ourselves in the light of Your Word to how we need to be transformed because that is Your task, to transform us into the character of Jesus Christ so that He is manifest in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that You would help us to remember these things in this coming week. In Jesus' name, Amen.